interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Welcome to Game Over Montreal. I am Andrew Berkshire, as per usual. And the Montreal Canadiens played essentially a perfect game for what they want to accomplish this season. They played really hard against an incredible opponent that doesn't lose a lot this season. They showed up for a rivalry game. You know, they had some big plays from some important players down, I believe, still 10 players, 10 roster players, and they lost and they didn't get an extra point, which is great for the tank. So uh, all good vibes, I hope, in the chat tonight as uh, the Canadians do what they're supposed to do. And we have a great show for you tonight. Rachel Dory is coming back to join us. She's going to apologize because... On the last show, you may remember, she said the Canadians weren't going to get anywhere near Bedard unless Caulfield or Suzuki gets hurt. And then, right away, Caulfield got hurt. So, uh, Rachel's got a lot to answer for with that curse. But before we get into all that, you think you know the way it's going to go? Make your bet with Sports Interaction. Whether it's hockey, football, or basketball, Sports Interaction has you covered. Bet pre-game, live in play, or on one of our many prop bets. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, play, and cash out. Join now and see all sports betting has to offer. Want to bet? Head to sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. That's sportsinteraction.com slash sdpn. 19 plus. Please play responsibly. Now let's welcome in Rachel Dory. How are you, Rachel? Oh, I can't hear you. I think your mic disconnected. <laughs> yeah, I'm go. good. I know. I had a mute because I was coughing because, you know, everyone's <laughs> sick. Um... Yeah, I'm good. I'm happy to be back. And I mean, oh my goodness. I when Nick Suzuki went down today, I was like, I'm gonna be in so much trouble if he's <laughs> actually hurt. Like, I'm I'm on a week ago and I say what I say, and then I come back and oh my goodness, like that could have gone sideways super fast. Yeah, and then Doc got seemingly hurt in the second period as well. He took a hit kind of behind the play and it looked like he couldn't use his right arm for the rest of the shift and i was like oh my god did doc separate his shoulder you imagine like suzuki doc and caulfield all go out in the matter of a week i would i would get banned from this show like people would go from like asking for me to come back to being like please never ever bring her back again because something always happens yeah, it would be absolutely wild. But hey, Kirby Doc stepped up in a big way tonight. He basically turned into Evgeny Malkin whenever Sidney Crosby's getting injured. And he's been money, uh, continues to be money. You know, let's start off on, on that foot because I've seen a lot of takes, Rachel, oh. on Twitter that, you know, we all know Suzuki's been a little bit cold uh, since like middle of December, maybe even a little bit earlier after his like insane start to the season. Doesn't have Caulfield anymore to work his way off of. Still playing top line matchups. There's a lot of talk on Habs Twitter right now that Doc is actually the better player. Where are you on that? Than Suzuki? Yes, than Suzuki. I know. It seemed a little bit crazy to me, too. <laughs> okay. Um, I think the look on my face might have uh, said that all. Um, <laughs> because, I, like, okay, I think it's important to point out that Kirby Doc has played a fair chunk of the season on Suzuki Caulfield's wing. Um, and it, I don't think it's an accident that everybody gets better when they play with those two. Um, and so for me, I look at it and I say like, obviously Kirby doc is bigger, like he's taller, but I think Nick Suzuki's more well-built for longevity at the center ice position. Um, he is 
one of the best 200 foot players like that's young in the league like i think him uh maddie Beneers, i also count as obviously being uh super young um i think that those guys are are probably like some of your top young 200 foot players and kirby doc has a long way to go defensively and i think with suzuki he's able to impact the game in other ways if he's not scoring so like you said he's been a little bit cold offensively since december but that doesn't mean he's doing um negative things like he's not a net negative when he's on the ice he's still doing positive things he's drawing penalties uh he's winning face-offs like i i just think that he's he's impacting the game in other ways and the other thing with suzuki is regardless of whether he's scoring or not he's setting a, a solid example in terms of making the right plays little details being on the right side of the puck like that kind of thing and i think that's a positive thing for uh, a group that's kind of coming into its own and is going to continue to build yeah and like this isn't taking anything away from doc right like no 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 the ascension that we've seen from him this season is incredible and to go from what he was the last couple of years for chicago to being compared to nick suzuki at all it's a really good sign. <laughs> like it's it's a really good sign for yeah. the Montreal Canadiens. But That's, I think we like, we talked last show about like where if you were to build the perfect team for like contention, where players kind of slot right. And if you're building for contention, if you could have Suzuki and Doc as your two three centers, that's a pretty decent starting point. So what you're saying is is. Montreal, now that they're without Caulfield, needs to lose so that they can, you know, get Connor Bedard, who could theoretically be the one C, and that kind of makes everything. I'm telling you that if Montreal gets Bedard next year, they're probably going to make the playoffs. Like, that's, I think Montreal is kind of like in this unique area where if they get a player of that caliber uh, inserted into their lineup, they're probably a playoff team. I don't think they're a good playoff team. I think they're a playoff team. Yeah. Right. Or like they're in the bubble there. Like I could see them finishing like just out of the wild card kind of thing. Um, but yeah, like that would we were talking about that. Right. You want ideally you need like every team who's won a cup has had a center that's impactful at both ends of the ice. I mean, look at the team Montreal played tonight. They have the best 200 foot center of the last decade playing for them and and look at the success that they've had yes they've only won one stanley cup but at the end of the day like does anybody want to see the bruins in the playoffs like i i don't think so right and so i think that that's kind of the mold that montreal should be looking for and and nick suzuki kind of fits that perfectly albeit with a little bit less offense than patrice bergeron yeah and i mean it's hard i think i think it's really hard to be as committed defensively as Patrice Bergeron is and still maintain the level of production that he's had throughout his career. Like the guy is money, 30 goals every year. And to think that like early in his career, there was a possibility that he was never going to play again from those devastating head injuries that he took. Yeah. And I think, I mean, listen, it's hard to find anybody in this league that can score 30 goals. And so if you, if you have, somebody that could score 30 goals on your team like that's a valuable player and yes every 30 goal scorer is going to have their awards like not every 30 goal scorer is going to be a 200 foot player um but at the same time like as long as you're not defensively like a liability 
that's you're automatically going to be a net positive because when you're scoring 30 goals, you're naturally going to draw the defensive matchups. You're naturally going to draw penalties. You're going to draw attention. And that right there is a net positive for your team because that opens up space for all the other players on the ice. And if you have that innate ability to distribute the puck as well as be a 30 goal scorer, that makes you all the more dangerous. Yeah. A hundred percent. I do want to get, deeper into this game specifically as much as we it's always fun to talk about roster construction with you but before i do i want to tell everyone if you're enjoying the show obviously please uh, like the stream because it helps us grow and subscribe to sdpn ring that little bell because they have to make it a multi-step process so that you can actually see the videos and uh, if you really like it hey you can share this show on social media right now and get more people in here and have more fun and it's going to be even more fun tonight because we have a new extension on OBS that I can now highlight your questions and it'll show up on the stream video. So if people are watching after the show and they don't have the chat replay on, they can see what we're talking about. So if you have any questions, throw them in the chat and I can highlight them right on the screen for us. So that if Rachel's watching on, uh, on YouTube, she can see the questions as well. See what they're actually asking instead of my butchered reading of them. (laughs) So uh, we'll be able to answer all your questions tonight. It's going to be really fun. Uh, First one, actually, that I see, uh, username Jax1 says Doc, I think, is also playing injured. I think everybody is playing injured at this point in the season, but yeah, Doc, the yeah, knee so from Gudis, the shoulder tonight. Here's kind of a behind-the-scenes curtain pull that I'll give you. Um, you will not find an NHL player in the league now, at this point in the season, that isn't playing with some level of bump or bruise, which is why the bye week is so important. The bye week isn't there and wasn't negotiated so that um, players could just go on vacation. A lot of those players actually need that rest and recuperation because of the toll. Like you would be absolutely shocked that there's a reason teams have like six massage therapists and like two physios and outside this and this, that like, everyone's banged up because what people don't understand is like you're playing 82 games, but you're also practicing every day and you only get one CBA off day a week. And so think about that. Like imagine if you had to go physically and people say, Oh, well it's only one hour, hour and a half of practice. Okay. Well, there's also a two hour workout that's usually associated with that. Plus you have about an hour warm up. Plus you've got video. Like guys are at the rink. Probably I would say from about, 8.30 in the morning is usually report time, probably 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So there's nobody, by the time you're done practicing and playing all these games and workouts and all of that, like everyone's got some type of nick. It's just a matter of how serious it is. Now, if you're playing on a team that's tanking, uh, even though Gary Bettman said that doesn't exist, if you're playing (laughs) on a team that's not making the playoffs um, and you have a bump or bruise that is any more than a bump or bruise you shouldn't be playing which is why i thought what montreal did with caulfield was a really good idea there is no sense in having him play out the season because he's having a really good one then having him miss the beginning of training camp because a lot of people don't understand that missing training camp actually completely sets your entire season back when william nylander missed half the season he missed training camp he was terrible when he came back when um elias Pettersson um sat out like he never really recovered that season right and same thing happened to william nylander right 
exactly like you're you're more likely not only to get injured when you don't have a proper training camp because that's kind of what like revs your body up but you're also just more likely to not have your timing right to not be on the same page and and all of those things and so sitting Caulfield down so that he's ready to go for the start of training camp next year barring any setbacks was a really shrewd move by the Montreal organization and I think that kind of gets like underrated a lot is people don't understand that the timing of these surgeries is, is super, super important. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into uh, some other stuff on the game here too, but I just wanted to highlight one last question before we get into it, because it's related to what we're already talking about. I got to change the framing on this. Okay. It won't show the whole question. That's unfortunate, but uh, <laughs> Montreal MUFC says, speaking of changes, do you think the Habs should also consider firing their therapy strength and conditioning staff? When it's been a few years that we've had fitness issues, got to ask them. I think this has been like a consistent talking point in the last couple of weeks here because Caulfield uh, had been injured for months, right? And playing through it and then a medical evaluation, they decided to take him out. I feel like it, I know it's not as satisfying because everybody wants like fire and brimstone, but my read of the Caulfield situation, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Rachel, is that he had an injury that they were monitoring and once it started to decline, they were like, all right, let's pull them. Yeah, so um, I can actually give some insight into Montreal's specific department. I know Adam Nicholas. Um, we actually went to York University and had the same supervisor. So I actually have some insight into like the work that he does and, and his qualifications. Um, Adam Nicholas is actually one of the most qualified strength and conditioning professionals in the National Hockey League. Um, he would probably be more suited and more qualified to work for like a FIFA national team or in the NFL. Like that's how good he is at what he does. Um, so I have no qualms with any Adam Nicholas related, and he's more like sports science, strength and conditioning. That is separate from the doctors. So a lot of times what happens is let's say there's an injury, like we talked about bumps, bruises, whatever. If you continue to play through that, like you're not going to get better. That's not how that works. Like, look at Austin yeah. Matthews. He was playing through something this whole year. That's why he hasn't been taking one-timers. And then it flared up, and they were like, all right, he's got to sit, right? With Cole Caulfield, and because it's a shoulder, um, I got some insight into that, too, because, like, I've had some pretty major shoulder injuries. <laughs> um, usually what they do with a shoulder is if you operate on a shoulder, it's never a quick recovery process. It's not like a meniscus in your knee where you can just get it scoped and like you're back in four to six weeks when you get arthroscopic shoulder surgery done, you're talking about going in and fixing either like the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, like there's, there are tendons and ligaments there that, that can be huge issues. And so what they usually try and do is uh, keep it moving because that, that helps kind of scar tissue not build up. They also try and do a lot of physical therapy. And if that doesn't work, then surgery is the last resort just because it's so invasive. And so with Caulfield, I saw it was just shoulder surgery. So I was kind of like, okay, I kind of understand where this is at because you don't want to have shoulder surgery if you don't have to, because it it temporarily destabilizes the shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Josh Anderson had talked about that now. And he's one of the rare cases where he said that his shoulder is like stronger now than it was before. But yeah, from what I've read, that's happens. like, yeah, that's just not, a very common thing as soon as you start pulling apart the shoulder it's well, it's you look pretty at, tough look at mine right now so like this is my left shoulder right but like look at my right shoulder if you notice like if you just look at me i'm wearing a sweater but you can see that it's dropped forward a little bit 
And like, this is a shoulder that I've injured. And so like, I'm trying to avoid surgery. I don't think that that's going to happen, but a lot of the times like it gets weakened. And so then you have other ligaments that are compensating and other muscles that are compensating. And when you're doing like, for me, I don't play a professional hockey. So like, it doesn't matter. But when you're Cole Caulfield and you're not only a professional hockey player, but you're small and you're a shooter, um, you kind of need your shoulders. Like <laughs> You can't yeah. be walking around like I am with like a half broken chicken wing. Like that just doesn't work. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that Montreal went this way. And, and but yeah, like shoulder surgery, hip surgery, those are usually last resort stuff. Whereas like hand surgery, like you just just get it done. Yeah, Just like, go for it. Get it done. Same with like, for the most part, I feel like ACL surgery. They're like, get him in there. Get him in there. Except for Josh George. He's like, I'll play 12 years with no ACL. Yeah, like, that's impossible. That <laughs> Don't do that. Wild, wild decision making from Josh George's. All right. Um, I wanted to have a hot take here. And I know I swear to God, guys, we will talk about the game. I promise. Yeah, because we have a, demonstrations. It, I brought props. <laughs> it's true. And it was a good game, frankly, like from from both teams, very entertaining game back and forth. But I, I want to have a hot take about the Bruins here because they are basically unbeatable so far in this regular season. But my old trusty statistic of PDO, which for those who don't know, takes the team's shooting percentage and team save percentage and combines them together to create a number out of like 100. Usually teams don't stray too far from those numbers combined together being about 100. You know, it varies year to year. There are teams that can go to like 101.5, 102. But the Bruins are currently at 104.4 before this game. They'll be dropped a little bit because the Canadians got pretty lucky tonight. But I look at that combined with the Bruins' age, and I think they're a team that goes out in the second round. They'll be really tough to knock out, but I don't think they're going all the way. I think a lot of bettors are going to lose money betting on the favorite this year. Okay, so... Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up PDO because I think that's a stat that um, kind of gets thrown around and like a lot of people don't know what it truly is. Yes, and so, I feel like we can improve it now too. With You can use like yes. expected goals to kind of create like how far you're outperforming your expected PDO. Yes, yeah, so you have for goaltending, you have goals saved above expected and then you have uh, goals scored above expected. That is probably the PDO that I would be going with. Yeah. Um, but to me, a regular PDO, like one that's not attributed to luck whatsoever is usually like 98.5 to like 101.5. If you're within that, like you're within one and a half percentage points of the exact medium. Um, but like 104 is like, that's, that's pretty high in the same way that like a team that's 93, like I wouldn't expect that to continue either. Now, exactly. having said that. The better teams usually are have better PDOs, and the worst teams usually have worse PDOs. So, like, it would not shock anybody if I came on here and was like, oh, Anaheim's PDO is, like, 96. You'd be like, yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Right? Whereas, like, if I came on and said Boston's, like, 103, you'd be like, yeah. But 104, 105 is, is pretty difficult to sustain. Um, the, the thing with Boston, though, is... There's like, first of all, yes, aging curves are a thing. And I think David Krejci is probably going to hit a wall at some point. I mean, he played in 
Czechia last year, so that's probably going to happen. Patrice Bergeron, I probably should get rested down the stretch. But when you have three lines like Boston rolled out tonight, where you have Bergeron and Marsh on one line, Pasternak on another one, and Taylor Hall on another one, like that is problematic to defend against. And then you have the added issue for other teams, which is whenever Jim Montgomery feels like it, he can roll out the perfection line. And I mean, we saw that tonight, like Montreal was in the game the entire game, but when the perfection line was on, they had no chance. There was no answer. None. Zero answer. And that's the case for most teams. It's not a knock on Montreal. Like that's just, that's Boston. But I think, they're going to have to lean on that a little bit more in the playoffs. And I agree with you. I'm not sure that Bergeron specifically has the legs to be able to play 22 minutes a night in the playoffs. When you think about it in the Atlantic, like Tampa and Toronto are going to have to play each other. That's going to be a war. And then whoever wins that series is playing Boston and that's going to be a war. So like whoever comes out of those three teams is going to be fully injured And probably half dead at that point. Like, I honestly, I could see Boston getting through the second round. I don't see any Atlantic team getting through the third round. Yeah, and I I should say, I looked through, and actually there was a team last year. I thought that the highest PDO any team has ended a season with was the 2009-2010 Washington Capitals, who just so happened to lose to Montreal in a huge upset in the very first round. <laughs> because which... Montreal had an inflated PDO. <laughs> exactly, right? It just like everything flipped on them in that one moment. And like that's the thing about these kinds of statistics is like there will be regression at some point, but sometimes it can happen over a span of 35 games to end the season and then you're good. And sometimes it feels like it just flips on you and everything goes wrong for a short span of time. And that happened to the Washington Capitals. But uh, St. Louis actually topped that last year, which... Makes sense because I remember all last year watching them being like, these guys are not good. They are good yeah. at passing. They can create amazing passing plays, but they can't defend. And they have trouble getting in the zone. They're just not great. And they did that stuff in the playoffs. And then Colorado, I mean, actually, Colorado struggled with them a little bit compared to the rest of the playoffs. But uh, yeah, and like to be yeah. fair, like Patrice Bergeron deserves the benefit of the doubt until. <laughs> Until he shows me he can't do it, I'll always believe he can. But, like, statistically, you would expect he takes a step back. Although, like, tonight, I mean, I think it's fair to say, at least in the first period, like, you and I were watching this. In the first period, I thought Nick Suzuki's line did a fantastic job. Like, Suzuki actually came out more than 50% on the face-offs in the first period. And, like, obviously, face-offs are face-offs. But it's also Patrice Bergeron. Like, we're not yeah. talking about face-offs versus uh, some dude. And so I think that's a real, like, even though it was only really one period, I think it's a it's a feather in the cap for Nick Suzuki because I thought he did a really good job going to head-to-head with, with Bergeron tonight. And I wonder if because Suzuki was so strong tonight to start the game, maybe that's why Montgomery was like, let's just put Pasternak and Marshawn with Bergeron and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Once they do that, you know, Suzuki with... Pitlick and Anderson is not going to be enough to cut it, right? They need you need something else there. It can't be, you know, and Josh Anderson played his heart out tonight, I thought. Right. Just like he did against Toronto. But he's still a pretty limited player on the defensive side. He can back check pretty well. I think he's actually taken some steps overall in certain areas of his defensive game once he started playing on the penalty kill. But you know, I've talked about this before, Rachel. I don't know how much uh, you disagree or agree, but I think defense on the penalty kill is very different 
than defense at even strength. Like at on the penalty kill, you can see where guys like Joel Edmondson still have a lot of value because you can just get the puck and slam it. You don't really have to make decisions once that turnover has been accomplished. Whereas even strength, like the defensive play isn't over once you get the puck and try to move it. You have to actually make a play with it. Yeah, so it's interesting you brought up back-checking because I'm of the belief that you could be the dumbest hockey player alive and still be a good back-checker because back-checking requires almost zero skill, but it requires 100% effort. Yep. If you just follow your system, so aka you follow what your coach tells you to do, which usually on a back-check, it's called tracking, like coaches call it tracking, Um. On a track, everybody knows what their role is immediately. F1, F2, F3, you know what you're doing. So as long as you follow that and you go all out like 100%, you can be a good back checker. So I'm of the belief there's really no excuse for being a poor back checker. I just think you're lazy at that point. But I, I agree with you. I think defense on the penalty kill versus defense, generally speaking, is actually completely different. You're forced to make, and honestly, like sitting and chatting in a coach's office with a couple of different coaches really like uh, brought this home for me because when you're on the penalty kill, somebody like Joel Edmondson knows that his stick needs to be in a certain lane at a certain time and that his body needs to take away a different part of the ice. So usually your stick is in the passing lane and your body's in the shooting lane. Well, when you're playing five on five, you can just square up because There's not really lanes that you need to take away because you're not outnumbered. So you're playing defense at a totally different pace. You have to know when you can and can't pressure on the penalty kill. Whereas at five on five, when you're playing defensively, there's no reason to not be pressuring. You should be pressuring because again, that goes back to effort. And so as long as you're pressuring in the right spots on, on five on five, like you're probably not going to get beat egregiously, but on the penalty kill, I mean, you have to be able to make reads. Like, it's not yeah. about who can cross-check people in front of the net. It's about who has their stick in the right spot, who can identify where the dangerous areas are, who can identify that um, a guy is a right-handed shot versus a left-handed shot, and therefore where that puck is more likely to be coming, like, the, on an angle from. It's It's things like that. So you actually, I think the smartest hockey players don't play on the power play. They play on the penalty kill. And, well, actually, the smartest hockey players can play on both. Um, so that's <laughs> yeah. kind of when you get into Nick Suzuki, uh, Mitch Marner, Elias Pettersson, uh, Sidney Crosby. Like, those guys, some of the smartest players in the league. Yeah. Uh, Secret Agent Man says there's also a difference between playing five on five and playing on the PP as well, Andrew. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, offensively. <laughs> I, here's where I am w- with that situation. Uh, and you can tell me your opinion as well, Rachel. Uh, I think offense at the five on five level almost requires breakthrough talent because there's so much like uh, systems to get through. You need to have those players who can create those odd man situations. It doesn't have to be on a break, but like in the corner where you're just, you're outmanning someone make making something happen in small spaces where as the power play, you can have players who aren't super high skilled, but if you have a good uh, scheme, you can still score goals. So I, I find power play offense is much more reliant on coaching than five on five is where I see five on five is like changing a bit in the last few years where like there's more coaching towards offense, 
but I still feel like five on five offense is more reliant on talent than the power play. Yeah, I was trying to find what Arizona's power play percentage was because I was going to use it and just say like the difference between like Arizona's power play percentage and like a middle of the road team is is not that much. Like it's a few percentage points. And so I think you're right. At five on five, you need that breakthrough talent. You need that special um, player. So I look at this and I say on the power play, you have more time and space. Yes, obviously your best players are, are are going to play there and they absolutely should, but it's more about the schemes and the plays that you run and those players communicating with each other and being able to play off each other than it is about anything else. On the penalty kill, like you have to be able to read the play and you have to be willing to block shots. Whereas on the power play, you have to identify lanes and like, yes, that like make no mistake, playing offense takes a lot more talent than playing defense does. But we're talking about outnumbered situations. And so I think when you when you look at that, like somebody like Cole Caulfield can can figure out how to create a lane on the power play. Right. right. But then imagine the flip side of that, where the defender now has to track that, figure out like what the angles are and then be in the right spot all within a second. Right. And so I think the breakthrough talent at five on five is is geared more toward offense and just like looking at how power plays are coached now. It really depends on the personnel you have. Like there are some teams that run um, two defensemen. There are some teams that run one defenseman and four forwards, but like four of the five players on the ice are either are left shots, right? So then they set up based on that. And so I, I agree with you. I think you you kind of need that. But at the end of the day, both the success of both specialty teams is hinged on effort. On the PK, yeah. it's being willing to like block shots and get in lanes. On the PP, it's being able to outnumber and win your battles because you should not be losing a battle on the power play. Like you just shouldn't. And you also should not just stand still. <laughs> As uh, we saw from no. Nick Suzuki tonight, <laughs> just skating behind the net did so much. You know, just moving around, yeah. move around the zone a little bit. I know that everyone wants to have their favorite spot, but you gotta. You got to create some chaos on the power play. Um, I spoke to a coach about this. We actually like looked at stationary power plays versus um, like power plays that move around mm -hmm. and the power plays that move around were so much more successful. Like it was an order of magnitude more successful. Um, I feel like you'd have to pass so pinpoint accurate and quick to be able to be successful with a stationary power play. And yeah, I just don't know how you could do that in the modern NHL with the way lanes are covered. The only way you could really get away with some level of stationary power play is if you ran like the reverse umbrella. So like you ran a behind the net power play. Mm. But then again, like there's not that many guys in the league anymore that are at the level of passing, let's say of like a Joe Thornton or an Adam Oates. Like there's very few of those players. And so you can't really have stationary because it's just it's too easy to cover i just put my stick in the lane and it's done right yeah. so i i don't think you can have that and i i think suzuki tonight was a, a really good example of that like you look at him on the goal line and he's moving back and forth that forces the defenseman not only to move but also to turn and when your skates are facing the end boards you are in trouble as a penalty killer because you have no idea what's going on behind you yep yep Making people less aware of their surroundings is always a good strategy. Um, I did want to talk about uh, 
Sam Montembeau. And we had a question here. I'll just highlight it quickly from Noel, who's always uh, in here spreading the Montembeau love. We talked about him last game. Another amazing performance from Sam Montembeau. He was maybe even better than tonight against the Toronto Maple Leafs, especially in that third period uh, last game. This guy, I know he's on a heater, and that's something that we have to take advantage of, or like we have to put in context, but he just keeps on giving reasons to believe in him. Now, at the same time, around this time of year, a few years ago, I mean, I guess it's getting to be a long time ago now, the uh, Mike Condon year for the Montreal Canadiens happened when Carey Price was out for the year. And Condon was having a great first half of the year. And I remember I was making fun of him tonight. Arpin Basu from The Athletic tweeted like, this isn't a mirage from Mike Condon. This is real. And then he fell off completely. (laughs) His career went completely into the toilet. So everyone retweeted him for like five years. But I'm, I'm looking at Montembeau and how much of what he's doing is like a bit more controlled, how much better his puck tracking is. And it looks less like a guy who's just kind of flailing in the pucks, hitting him than a guy who's actually taking a step. And I, I think you're with me as well that uh, he's like in solid backup ta- territory now, at least. Yeah. So I think Montembeau, like when Mike Condon had that year, I remember, um, talking to a few people about that and like even like more recently i remember asking somebody about that and this person said that like the the puck was it was hitting him like he was just flailing around like he was dominic hoshik which is you can't play goalie like that anymore like you just you you can't and i think with sam montembeau kind of what i'm noticing now is one of the things you look at and this was something i learned pretty like within the last year so you could probably guess at who i learned it from but one of the ways you can evaluate um whether a goalie is getting lucky or whether it's a fundamentals thing is when they're like how they play while they're on their knees like how do they move how are they in control when they slide when when they push out from like a post out to like the top of the crease is it controlled or is it kind of like what like, yeah. are they, are they ever, do they ever look off balance? And if they look off balance, then that is a way to tell that they're probably getting lucky. But if they're out and it looks sharp, they're set and then they can push. And like, if like when Montembeau made that save against, uh, Pasternak. who was that? Pasternak tonight. You look Which at the way it's he, on he's... Pasternak. So, you know, it's a good one. First of all, that was a ridiculous pass by Taylor Hall. And I it will was. brag about Taylor Hall any chance that I get. So, like, that's just easy. But you look at Montebo on that specific save. It would be almost expected that he would just be like, whoa, and and trying to just get over there. But if you go back and you watch the save, not only it, does he just, like, okay, T-push over, he gets his blocker up, and he's not out of control at all. He's totally there. So, like, heaven forbid there was, like, a rebound of some sort, he still would have been there wasn't like a fish out of water and so i think that to me that was when i looked and i said okay like this is there are some fundamental improvements here and so i'm with you i think he's a a really good backup i don't think he's ever going to be like a 1b or a 1a but i think that that's there's that's a legit backup for sure yeah he's been really strong and you know surprised i think everyone this season and and the people who are cheering for a tank who also love Montebo are like uh, uh, the whole time. But uh, 
It, like, it's honestly that. been yeah, it's honestly been great to watch him have this season after like how rough last year was for him and the whole club and having to play through injury and all that. So it, it's been really uh, endearing to watch Montemo kind of ascend the ranks here. And you know, one of the things that I talk about with uh, Paul Campbell, who works for In Goal Magazine with goalies, is you can tell if a goalie is like overloaded if instead of uh, saving the puck with their chest, they're saving it with their extremities all the time. And yes. you, still, you still get that with Montembeau, but I don't know if I really blame him when I look at like the high danger chances that the Canadians allow. It's like, yeah, he's he's not going to be able to do this forever because he's playing for a team that gives up some incredible chances against. Like I, I didn't check uh, near the end of the game, but I know in the second period, the high danger chances were 8-1, I believe, for the Bruins in, in all situations. Oh, no, by the end of the second period, it was uh, <laughs> nine nine to two. Ooh. So the Canadian it was twelve three in all situations overall in this game. Faced thirty two scoring chances to the Canadians thirteen. So like it's not like he's out there saving muffins either. It's been no. a tough sled. And I think David Pasternak had six or seven shots tonight, and like positively zero of those are muffins ever. No. Like I don't yeah. know about many shots that David Pasternak fans on. There's just not that many of them, and they're usually like really good scoring opportunities just because of the way David Pasternak shoots the puck. It's one of those things. Um, I actually asked Thatcher Demko about it, and he named a few players where when they shoot the puck, it's almost difficult to read because of one the type of curve that they use but two their follow-through a lot of goalies look at where the puck is on the tape and then the the follow-through to kind of gauge like what area it's going to and he said one of the guys that's really difficult is David Pasternak because he can shoot it anywhere from anywhere on his stick and so you just you can't even cheat at that point yeah I remember I think it was an all-star game a couple years ago they talked to Carey Price and they asked him like who was the toughest shooter to read and he was like Matthews he was like, most every player in the league, I can tell where they're shooting. And he was like, Matthews, I have no idea. Just, and like Ovechkin was no the clue. same thing. Like I had somebody, like a goalie tell me that Ovechkin, when he shoots the puck, like on that patented one-timer, that the puck actually curves because that's how hard he shoots it. And I'm like, what? How? Like, Bend it like Ovechkin? <laughs> what? Like that doesn't even make sense. And then like you, you look at it and the spin and the curve that the guy used. I'm like, yeah, okay. That from a physics perspective, I could see how that would work. Yeah. I always find like the little intricacies like that. Super interesting. Like I remember years ago, Max Pacioretty was doing an interview and he was talking about what made uh, Andre Markov special. And he was saying that Andre Markov, when he passed, put like a backspin on the puck so that it would Uh, stop it would stop dead on your stick as opposed to other players that like couldn't really accomplish that. And I was like, I don't even know how that works. Like, I guess you'd have to like move your stick in a certain way to like, while you're passing it, but Gonchar could do the same thing. Yeah. It's like wild. Those little details that the players know because they're receiving the pucks. Right. But like on a TV screen, it'd be very difficult to actually notice that. Yeah. You'd have to be able to get a, frame by frame thing of the revolutions of the puck and i just i don't even listen we can barely get accurate shots on net at this point we're not getting revolutions of the puck like yeah, we're, we're not we're, we're not even getting not fast getting data <laughs> yeah like, outside of private companies we're not we're not even close to getting that kind of information no i wish we, 
once once we can get the time on ice and the shots on goal correct, then maybe we'll move to like passing data and then maybe we'll move to revolutions. I don't think we're ever getting there. Like, who are we kidding? What what are we kidding? Like, right now. We can't even get goaltender interference and offside, right, Rachel? It's it's a long ways away for this sport, unfortunately, but what can you do? We still love it. Uh, I know we did want to also talk about, I believe it was Boston's second goal. Uh, David yes. Krejci's tipping and fronting. And on that play... I thought that a KG veteran and David Krejci really took it to poor rookie Justin Barron on that. But what was your take, Rachel? Because you really wanted to talk about fronting on that play. Yeah. So when you're uh, and I know so um, when he gets with his development coach um, and I mistook the two of them, it's not Adam Nicholas is the development coach. Um, the other one, you were thinking Graham Reinbend. No, that's no, his name is also Adam and his last name is escaping me right now, which is probably not great. I'm very sorry, Adam, if he hears this. Um, but when it, the development coach sees that, so one of the biggest things as a defenseman and like, I have Adam heard Douglas, Adam Douglas. Thank you. Yes. Adam Douglas is who I went to school with. Jesus. I'm going to hear about that. Um, one of the biggest things that NHL coaches talk about for defensemen is fronting the puck, which means I'm just going to demonstrate here. So you're just going to have to bear with me. Okay. Let's say <laughs> that these two things, these are not the same size, but that's not really the point right now. Okay. If the net is one of them me, is Cole Caulfield. Yes. If the net is me. Okay. And you're like this, you are not fronting the puck. Let's say this is the forward and this is Justin Barron. So this is David Gretchen, right? You're not fronting the puck at this point. All right. If you're fronting the puck, you need to be here. Okay. Cause that means you're in front. Not why is this important? Okay. If you're here and you're trying to tie up a guy's stick, you have no leverage here and you're probably taking a hooking penalty. And that guy can see the puck coming. So he knows when he's got to get a stick free. But if you're in front, David Krejci can no longer see the when the puck is coming, or it's at least a lot more difficult. And it's a whole lot easier to keep his stick tied up because you're in a better position of leverage. Not only that, when you're fronting the puck, you can also block the shot. So if you're going to be in the way, you had better be blocking the shot or clearing the net front out. You can't be doing neither. You need to be doing at least one of them. And so that's when when you're a young defenseman and Justin Barron is a rookie. So I don't expect that he's going to have this down pat. But like somebody like Joel Edmondson is really, really good at fronting the puck. You'll notice when he at five on five, he is always in front of the guy or directly behind him there. It's never side to side because it's completely useless. You don't really want to be behind them, but you also that's when the cross checking comes in. You don't really want to be doing that. (laughs) The best place you could be is is in front of them because you can either block the shot, you could tie up the stick, clear out the net. It just gives you better leverage, and that's something Justin Barron will learn, and Arbor Jack guy will learn. Like these are things that come with playing in the NHL, and so it's one of those things where David Krejci is like a crafty veteran, right? He knew hey, I got to get my stick free. Bang, it's in the net. Joe Pavelski, best in the league at doing that. Yep. But when you've got a defenseman who kind of knows how like where they need to be positioned that's something that really helps you and and in that specific case probably would have prevented a goal yeah i hope everybody enjoyed my canada dry starbucks (laughs) cup demonstration i should have just bought my whiteboard like (laughs) yeah i i I guess 
where does like just to get so everybody understands because i remember there's a lot of debate around fronting i believe it was when carlisle was coaching the leafs and he was like really heavy oh, into fronting yes. and people were like oh we're tired of this fronting stuff because i feel like there's definitely some like there's a, a give and take with everything right so like, yes. if you're fronting the puck and you have a clever guy at the blue line on the opposition, like a like a John Klingberg, who's good at getting those like, little wrist shots through, and a goaltender who gives up rebounds, like a Sam Montembeau. Uh, if you're fronting, you're then behind in the puck battle to to get on that rebound, right? So there's a drawback there. So is is there a clear dichotomy between fronting and boxing out, or is it just kind of like you have to read and react to the play that's happening? and choose what you're doing. So boxing out is always option one. Always option one. Like, that is why teams like big defensemen. Ben Chirot, Joel Edmondson, like, that is why teams like them. Because they're just bigger and it's easier to box out. Boxing out is always, you always want to give your goaltender the the clear um, path to the shot. If you can't, box out because you're a small like Justin Barron then fronting is your next option and what happens is is what you can see when the shot's coming and you know you need to keep that stick tied up so theoretically even if there is a rebound that stick is tied up so at least that person is not getting their stick on the puck first and it's like with how good hockey players are they can pretty much turn and I saw this being taught um by a skills coach as let's say you're fronting the puck as the puck is coming you can turn into the player so your stick let's say like i'm right-handed right so like let's say i'm turning if i'm turning in so my stick's already like i'm gonna be tied up i'm probably gonna be probably this side right you could turn into them so immediately not only are you tying them up you're still fronting the puck but you're ready for that rebound and to tie up that, like keep that stick tied up if you need to. So I think it's it's kind of a balance. If you can box out, you absolutely box out. There's no debate about that. But if you are basically below 6'3", I want to say, like if you're six foot three and, and weigh less than 220 pounds, you're probably not boxing out very many guys. You need to front the puck and then kind of master that skill of turning and tying up the stick. Because it's really, let's face it, Tyler Myers, like the we're talking about the big boys. That are, bo- that are boxing out, right? Dustin Bufflin was boxing out. Right. Yeah, you're not going to move him. Chris Pronger boxing uh, out. Oh, yes. Noted, With his elbows. Well, yeah. I would not advocate for boxing out the way that Chris Pronger does because you will probably get suspended. <laughs> Almost certainly, actually. Yeah, you've got to have that Pronger physics protecting you. But the those, amount uh, of times, like, when you see... One of the things, like, if you're interested in kind of watching, like what separates good defensemen at the net front versus not do not watch the cross checking watch the stick taps to the top of the skates guys routinely will just stick tap to the top of the skates because there's almost no protection there and it freaking hurts and you're almost never getting called for it so they'll just get a nice little tap there and off we go so it's it's kind of one of those things where if you want to know if a guy's kind of learning you can watch for that yeah hmm, why is everyone always injured all the time <laughs> why does everybody have a broken foot (laughs) yeah exactly why are foot injuries so serious why do they end careers all the time admitted that he like purposely broke people's feet it was wild i was like what like 
he is an a- he was an absolute warrior in the worst and best way, Chris Pronger. But yeah, uh, yeah. So a learning process for uh, for Justin Barron. I know Trizak right before you said six three was like noted small boy Justin Barron at six two. But the thing <laughs> is, I think the point is like he's not like for a defenseman like the height is, and weight is huge now. Like and it's more weight than it is huge. Height. Yeah, it is. It, it, and it's filling out your body too. And Justin Barron is still pretty young. And I think oftentimes we underestimate how long it takes for people to have like a NHL level body, right? Where you're, it's not just about like your Slavkovsky has a lot of weight on him, right? But he still looks like a baby deer out there. When you're yeah, like, like Bambi. <laughs> yeah, like four years from now, five years from now, he'll probably be a machine. But there's very few guys that come into the NHL even at 1920, like Alex Ovechkin, and who can blow up like anybody. It's, he was it's a just refrigerator. Not- was he still is? He's a refrigerator. <laughs> like he's. They call him the Russian machine that never breaks for a reason. Although I know he's. Uh, I don't know if he's missing tonight's game, but I know he missed the last one which is a very rare That's thing for his career. Really odd. Maybe he's just like gearing up to be like, I don't want to go to the all-star game. <laughs> I totally want to go on is. vacation. His, his fake injury for the all-star game that he has oh, every year. Every single year. Respe- I respect it. I respect it. But they I need to Montreal, fix the all-star game. Oh my God. Montreal does have like Caden Gooley is big enough to box guys out once he gets his man strength. Arbor Jacki is a problem at the net front for opposing people. Like, he's already boxing guys out, right? They're going to trade Joel Edmondson. Like, Lane Hudson is not boxing anybody out, but ideally you're not even playing in the defensive zone when Lane Hudson is on the ice. So that's not really going to be an issue, I don't think. But if you look at it, like, Montreal has enough guys where you can box out. And as long as the big roof boxing out guys are playing with guys who can skate really well, then you can kind of have that interchangeable, like, okay, that's the guy that breaks the puck out. And that's the guy that handles the front of the net. That's kind of usually what you want. hundred percent for every Caden Gooley, you need Elaine Hudson who continues to absolutely rip it up in the not NCAA. have been available where he was. <laughs> I know. Right. I saw Hattie going on about that today, about how ridiculous it is based oh. on, his production I level got in a yelling match with somebody about him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking of the Vancouver Canucks, we can't get into too much with them, but I did bet on against them tonight. Uh, their first game with Rick Tockett. They're currently out shooting the Blackhawks 21 to six and losing one, nothing. So. Okay. Blackhawks so are hot lately. Hang on. <laughs> so they're, they're out shooting the Blackhawks 21 to 6, and I'm assuming it's the first period, or maybe the second. Yep. Okay. So end, end of the first. They're giving up less shots? Like, is that a positive? It is literally the smallest sample size imaginable. Do not take this seriously. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a hundred percent like guys want to impress the new coach, right? But I feel like yes. that energy runs out quickly if they it's called the new coach well. bump. Yeah. And also, like, Rick Tockett is one of the scariest human beings as a coach. Like, um, I would want to piss him off. That's going to be a 100%. no for me, dog. Right? It's not like, <laughs> no offense to Marty St. Louis, but uh, Rick Tockett is a little bit scarier. True, true. I feel like Martin St. Louis, it has, it's like a love relationship, right? He's not the guy who's scaring you. He's just the guy that, like, if he asks you to do something, you can't say no because the guys, like, live through every trial that an NHL player could, right? Like he made it against all odds. Yeah. Yeah, If he tells you to work harder, you're like, yes, sir. (laughs) Yep. 
if you think I can work harder, I and guess I can work harder. Did Marty St. Louis win the Lady Bing? I think he did. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's also like, hey, yo, uh, don't take dumb penalties. And don't like you gotta work harder, you gotta be disciplined, you gotta do XYZ, you gotta have like tree trunk legs. And the thing about it, and this is what I find is like when you have a coach who maybe like is a little bit younger, somebody like a talk it, uh um Marty St. Louis, Jared Bednar, uh like kind of those guys. Rod Brindamore is actually the best example now that I think about it. How are you not motivated to be in the gym when you see what they're doing in the gym? Right. Like, imagine going into the gym with Rod Brindamore or Martin St. Louis and be like, you know what? I'm just, I don't really feel like working out today. I feel like, like the only what downside if they is got like beaten in fitness testing by their coach. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not unreasonable to happen, honestly, because man, Brindamore is a machine. I feel like the only risk there is like somebody injuring themselves trying to like outlift Rod Brindamore. <laughs> this is oh just a God. totally different now, situation. Now, I actually think that Martin St. Louis, like I know his hiring came with like some skepticism. Given what Montreal is right now, I actually think he's the perfect coach for them. Yeah. Do I think and- he's going to be the one that leads them to a Stanley Cup? Probably not. But I think in terms of developing specifically what they have and I absolutely mean cole caulfield um he you could not have anybody better no because he is a guy that lets guys make mistakes that understands that there's more to this than winning and you need a coach in terms of development to develop your young players that you want to be stars you need a coach that's going to allow young players to make mistakes and flourish and not just continually punish them for no good reason yeah Kay in the chat says apparently marty runs the stairs regularly after practice like those tree trunk legs didn't happen on accident not an accident like i would i i just i need the canadians to do some videos of him and cole together while cole's doing his rehab for his shoulder injury him and marty can do legs together in the gym every day and they can make a compilation yeah just have cole wear like a weight vest or something and just like do squats or like you can run the stairs with a bad shoulder 100 percent, he could do it i'm sure he could do it all right um if there's any questions that you want to throw in the chat there we can do that for a couple minutes and then i'm going to let rachel go and and relax for the rest of her night let's see here there's uh oh here's a great question great question from trizak should the montreal canadians bring in boudreaux as a coaching consultant for marty going forward let's say like as an assistant coach we know he knows how to run a power play maybe going into next year because i feel like boudreaux probably doesn't want to jump into another job right away um i think that i would if i were a playoff team i would absolutely bring bruce in maybe not even as an assistant coach because like he's still being paid by vancouver um but I would seriously consider bringing him in in a consultant, like eye in the sky role, um, because he, first of all, like he he wants to stay in the game. He said that publicly, and like I I know Bruce, and that he was not lying. Um, I think that if it's not his head that's on the line, you're going to get some development. Just like the way that man conceptualizes offense is incredible to me and so i think yes for montreal like because they have a bunch of like young skilled players but like if you're a team that let's say is pretty good defensively but like somehow seems to 
have issues scoring in the playoffs. <laughs> um, sorry, <laughs> sneezed. I would uh, consider bringing him in because he just he gets offense at a level that most coaches just don't. And maybe Bruce, he's 68 years old, right? I would love for him to get another head coaching job. Um, but even if he doesn't, I think a team would be really wise to bring him in to develop their offensive schematics, like kind of like an offensive coordinator. Hey, look, wow, we're innovating things here. Um, and a team like Montreal uh, is not short on money, so I'm sure they could make something like that work. And and I 100%. think like Bruce wants to win a cup. He, he really does. Um, does he want to be a head coach? Yes. But I think that um, he could seriously help a team um, develop their offensive schematics and, and have young players uh, develop just offensively. 100%. And I feel like as much as, you know, the drive is definitely there for, for Bruce to be a head coach, he doesn't strike me as a super prideful person. Like if he could find a situation that he likes to that he would not necessarily be the head coach and be more involved in the day-to-day. Cause yes, coaches who are fired in the NHL are still employed by the team and they do, I find mostly pro scouting, but I feel like that's kind of a waste of a coach. There, there was a point when I worked in New Jersey where every single pro scout that New Jersey had was a former head coach. Oh God. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. Literally oh, man. every single one. <laughs> that's, that's insane. All right, uh, we, we've got more questions, but I think we're going to have to wait for it for another time because this is already, I believe, verging on an hour. So thank you, Rachel, so much for joining us here today. I hope we've expelled the curse that you put on Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki <laughs> and maybe Kirby Doc just by proxy. And, you know, the Canadians, we need them to lose as the season goes on. They want that Connor Bedard pick and Florida I, I losing tonight. This helps if i have to if i have to pick a canadian team to get connor bedard montreal is the team i mean I th- just imagine how it would ignite the fan base it would be it, nuts i think i think that connor bedard would be better served in a market that's maybe not montreal in terms of like um growing the game like i think columbus would be kind of fantastic because it's super underrated as a city and i think that those fans are actually super loyal and, and they're doing things the right way there. So I think it could be a really good spot for him. Plus he's like, you're going to get some eight o'clock starts there. So then like both coasts will get to see him. I don't want to see him in Anaheim where like, I got to wake up at or stay up till 10 30 at night. But man, like if we're picking a, a hockey market for Bedard to go to, it is absolutely Montreal. Like a hundred percent just with all the tradition and everything like i just i think it'd be cool and and bedard is one of those kids he's so loyal that like i legitimately think he might just stay with the team who drafts him like forever unless things go horrendously awry see edmonton (laughs) rachel dropping bombs there (laughs) all right Uh, rachel tell everyone where they can find your work right now um yeah, so you can find me on the Staff and Graph podcast, which is uh, on the Hockey News and Sports Illustrated. You can find me on TikTok at PuckBucks. I just kind of started that. Um, on Twitter, at Rachel Dory. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I do right now because uh, from a professional standpoint, I'm, I'm doing other things. And so it's kind of my fun way. And thanks for having me on because I, I really like it. I find um, Game Over Montreal, like Montreal is a really educated and smart fan base and I, I just I think they really get some of the concepts that like we hit. And so I 
I really enjoy coming on. Yeah, and I enjoy having you as always because on top of having a fun conversation, I get to learn stuff. This is the best situation. If I if I'm learning, I think everybody else is learning too. And you know, for, to me, the role of media is to inform and learn and have fun, especially in hockey. So I think hopefully we've done all those things tonight. And uh, so thank you, Rachel, for coming on with us tonight. We'll be back at it, I guess, uh, Thursday night. I haven't even looked at the schedule to see uh, who we're playing against, but it's going to be fun. I'm sure of it. We'll hopefully uh, see the Canadians continue to move down the standings a little bit so we get Connor Bedard here to join his best bud from the World Juniors, Joshua Waugh. All right, everyone. See you then. Powered by Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook.